Well, good morning, all. Thank you for uh, joining us today. If you would take your Bibles and open to probably page one, I'm going to read Genesis 1-1 for us today, and then the message won't primarily be on this verse. It will be more on uh, the book in general. But we need these words in our day and age. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded even in these uh, few brief words that You are God that we are not, we are created beings. Father, we are grateful that You have given us Your Word that tells us about things we couldn't know otherwise. You who have created all things tell us what we need to know for life and godliness. You have given us your Word to tell us such things, breathed out by Your Holy Spirit, written down by men who were fallible like us, and yet Your Spirit moved in them, inspiring their words written for us. And Father, as we come to this book, this new study in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, we recognize that we are dependent upon You to know these things that are buried in the ancient past, too far removed from us to be able to divine on our own, and so You tell us. And we confess that what we learn in Genesis is something that we need in this day and age, not just about Your existence, though that is key, not just about our identity, who we are and where we find our origins, though those things are key, but as we're going to see today, as we learn even in Genesis about the problem of sin and the solution for sin. And so as we open Genesis, we ask that you would work even in this time this morning that your spirit would be at work teaching us from Your Word. We pray that You would work in each of our hearts individually. We pray that You would work in our uh, congregation. We pray that You would work through us to the world around us. So we ask for Your blessing on this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've entitled our study today, Why Study Genesis Now? Of all the things that we could look at, of all the things that we could focus on, on the big, wide Bible that we could turn to and preach from, why focus on Genesis? And I hope part of that answer is clear that we, we don't just turn and talk about things we want to talk about. We don't just give our opinions on world events or other things like that that, that sometimes happens in in pulpits. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be 
uh, Parkside Opinion Fellowship. I like to joke that Bible is our middle name and it stays that way. So we open the Bible and we want to see what God has for us, what our Creator would speak to us as His created beings, and particularly to us, the church, as His redeemed children. But why Genesis? Why not some other book? We could have uh, done some kind of calculation and figured out what's the, you know, what's next on the list, what has never been preached, or what has not been preached in the longest time, and focused on that, but I think there's great reason for us to focus on the book of Genesis at this time in our lives, at this time in our culture. And that's because we are living in the midst of a culture that is adrift. And I'm not creative enough to have come up with that myself. You can look and see the same exact thing, that we have people who don't understand who they are, don't understand why we have this life, don't understand what this world means, don't understand uh, what priorities we ought to have to uh, even just to live a, a normal, peaceful life, much less what is involved and what our priorities ought to be in living a Christian life, a God-honoring life. We live in a time that is very adrift. And kind of to, to indicate this a little bit, I, I, there are some basic questions that that we um, that help explain for us what we think about life, how we relate to the world around us, how we relate to ourselves and to other people and to the world around us. These are some basic worldview questions. What are the what's the lens through which we look to view the world? And we call that a worldview. And there are different ways to talk about that, but there are four basic questions involved in worldview studies to help us analyze and understand. Uh, how we look at the world. And the first one is, where do we come from? Where do we come from? And the second one is, what's our purpose? The third one is, what's wrong? What's wrong with the world? What's the problem? And then fourthly, what is the solution? And so I think even just by these brief questions, we can get an idea of uh, how the world is really adrift. And it's not just out there, by the way. There are many Christians, there are many people who attend churches who are adrift on some of these questions. But I want to look first and very briefly at atheism and maybe some answers, answers that atheism might give to these questions. And there's going to be variation. Not every atheist is the same, and, and there's going to be some creativity and whatnot. But how does, how does atheism answer that first question, where do we come from? Well, blind chance and matter, a roll of the dice. That's kind of where you came from. And so we are grown-up germs, and uh, that's kind of where we came from. Well, so how does atheism answer the second question, what's our purpose? The question is really, what is purpose? If we are the product of chance, there really is no ultimate purpose. We might find some, some purpose in self-fulfillment or, uh, you know, getting all the gusto I can or something like that, but ultimately that's only relative. And there's no ultimate purpose that if you are the product of chance, there is no purpose for you. That's, uh, that's an answer that atheism will give. And, uh, the answer to question number three, what is wrong in the world? Well, other people get in the way of our trying to get what we want. Whatever I've determined my purpose is, if atheism is true, whatever I've determined my purpose is, you better not get in the way of it. That's the problem. When culture or when people or the Bible or when Christians or something gets in the way of me fulfilling what I have determined is my purpose, 
That's what's wrong in the world. And so the solution, many times, in the 20th century, for example, we don't have to think that long ago, but just look at the history of the 20th century, the answer is to kill those who are in your way. If you look at atheistic systems like Marxism and communism and and fascism and things like that, some have calculated that as many as 125 million people were removed because they were in the way in the 20th century alone. So those are some of the answers that, that might be given by atheism. Now, of course, not every atheist gives those answers, and not every atheist wants to kill anyone else. I'm not saying that. But the answers derived by atheism itself are like these. Well, what about our culture? Okay, our culture is not actively, rabidly atheistic. What kind of answers does our culture give today? And this is answering the question, why preach on Genesis now? So what does our culture say about where we came from? Well, history can kind of be rewritten in our day and age, right? We know that. We see that. If you, if you follow, uh, you know, there have been news articles that come out and say this big explosive thing, and then later on they just gradually change that news article uh, later on. Uh, or in reflecting on history and things like that, you, you kind of can control it to fit your narrative. So you get to control where you came from, sort of. That's what our culture is pondering. So we don't really seem to have a really stable answer to where we came from. We can kind of change that, it seems. Well, what's culture's answer to the second question? What's our purpose? Uh, Probably something like self-expression or being your authentic self. Something like that uh, seems to be kind of the answers that will be given. What is our purpose? It's kind of up to you, and I dare not get in the way of your purpose and you better not get in the way of my purpose. But there's no clear answer. Our culture's answer to question number three, what's wrong in the world? Well, it's someone in the way of me fulfilling my purpose or someone in the way of of a person fulfilling their purpose, right? And so what do we do with those people? We don't typically kill them in our culture. We just silence them, right? We don't want to hear from them. And so we can do that in various ways, Um, but we don't want to hear from them anymore. That's our response, right, when someone gets in the way. And so that's really the solution that culture gives to that that fourth question, what's the solution to this problem? Just silence them. So you see the confusion. You see the difficulty. And it's hard for you if you have a view, if you have a position, if you have firm beliefs, it's hard to interact in this world because there's a lot of confusion. Well, as I alluded to earlier, this isn't just out there. This isn't just the people who've never been in church who have these kinds of confusion issues. It's also people who go to church. Not everyone, but those who have been influenced broadly by uh, our culture around us will, will struggle more with these kinds of questions. So what we want to look at today as we're introducing Genesis is how the Bible answers those questions, particularly how the book of Genesis answers these very important questions that help us identify who we are and what we're about. And what is the real problem in the world and what's the solution to that problem? Genesis addresses all of those things. So that brings us to our first question in the Christian answer, the answer in Genesis to the first question, where do we come from? Well, of course, Genesis is the book of beginnings. 
This is the beginning of the Bible. We turn to page one to read about this. This is, everything flows out of this. And so, we're introduced, first of all, to God Himself. In the beginning, God. Now, you'll notice He didn't make an argument for God. He didn't try to prove to you that God exists. He doesn't even really begin describing yet what this God is like. God is foundational. In the beginning, God did something. When there was nothing else, there was God. At the very beginning, God was already there. And so we're introduced to God Himself. And we see that in a a derivative way, kind of coming from that, we see that we have introduced the definition of what is good, or at least the definer of what is good. So not only does God exist, but we see as we uh, read through Genesis chapter 1, six times in there you have the statement, God did this, He created this, and it was good. God saw that it was good. God gets to determine. God gets to define what is good. And then there's one time in the first chapter there where, where he, he gets it all together having created man and having, having you know, arranged the whole thing and, and man is the image there and, and, and he's, he's got the woman there with him, male and female, he created them and he said it was very good. God gets to determine what is good. That means you and I don't. That means culture doesn't determine what is actually good. It comes to us from God Himself. And this is one of the things we're going to see as we continue on in Genesis. And related to that, we have right and wrong being identified. Our culture would say, most cultures would say, at least nowadays it seems to me, that we determine what is right and wrong. And if you go to this culture, or in that context, this thing is right and that thing is wrong. What we're hearing in the book of Genesis, as commands are given, as, as discipline and punishment is given for having broken those commands, we, we see that we have a very definition of what is right and what is wrong given to us by virtue of God Himself. Again, God doesn't make an argument for what is right. He tells us what is right. He reveals to us what is right. And He, as Creator, has the prerogative to give commands. And so, obedience to those commands is right. Disobedience to those commands is wrong. And so, we're introduced to the notion of of good, and we're introduced to the notion of right and wrong. And we're going to see the great consequences, even in chapter 3, of the results of the consequences of disobedience when, when Adam was told... You can eat from all of these trees, except for that one, and the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And of course, we know the story. We've read past chapter 3, and we know that they got to that temptation, and and they ate from that tree, and the result was death. And so we see uh, this idea of right and wrong, but it specifically relates to life. You see, the, the, the prohibition against eating from that tree brought with it a threat, a warning. If you do this thing I've told you not to do, there will be consequences. That consequence will be your death. Okay? 
And so there are those consequences, but we're also introduced to the idea of life and death. By implication, when he gives the command and says, here's a tree, don't eat from that tree, if you eat from that tree, you will die, the implication is, if you don't eat from that tree, you will live. And we learn in the story that there's actually a tree of life, and that partaking of that tree gives life. And so you have a definition, the origin of life and death. We've talked about this a little bit in our uh, last passage that we looked at together in John chapter 17, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus whom you've sent. True life has to do with right relationship with God. It doesn't just mean my heart continues to beat. It doesn't just mean that I can continue to draw breath and my, my body works. True life has to do with relationship, communion with God. And so we have God introduced and we have these things drawn from God like life that are introduced in Genesis. And so not only are we introduced to God, but we see from God the beginning of all things. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, that's a big statement. And all that is in them, all things are created by Him. They're not eternal. There is a, a notion called uh, creation ex nihilo, which has the idea that God created all things from nothing. He didn't take Play-Doh and rearrange it. He didn't take matter that was different and form it into what we have now, as if matter had always existed. No, He existed, and He spoke, and everything came into being. Everything that has come into being came into being by His hand. And the, the six days of creation here go into great detail about all these different categories and all these different aspects of creation and where, where the sun came from and where plants came from and the sea and the fish in the sea and, and mankind, where all of this comes from. The implication being everything that exists was created by Him. And if we think for a second, if He's the one who made all of this, if He's the one who made you and me, then we owe our existence to Him. We owe obedience to Him because He's our Creator. And this brings us to the Christian answer to question number two, what is our purpose? Our purpose is uh, indicated in chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Our purpose, our purpose as humans is that we were created in God's image. So our very identity, our very purpose, our reason for being is wrapped up in who He is and who He has made us to be. You see, we derive our purpose. We don't create our purpose. We don't look within ourselves to identify and find and root around and, and discover what is our purpose. 
our purpose has been given to us by the one who created us because he created us with purpose. He said, let us make man in our image. And so, we find our purpose related to him. Our purpose is to function as his image. Or in other terms, our purpose is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Our relationship with him defines who we are. And so, we learn in Genesis about the beginning of all things. And related to that, we also learn about the beginning of mankind. The beginning of mankind. And this tells us certain things about our identity. We've, we've hinted at this already, and we're going to dive much more deeply into it in the book of Genesis. But our identity is not something that we create. Who I am is not something that I create. It's something I find in God. By virtue of my having been created by Him, by virtue of the relationship that I have with Him. And so what are humans? We're created in His image. We have a specific relationship to Him. We've been made to know Him. And so our identity is found in that. Our identity is found ultimately in our relationship with our Creator. We find the roots, the beginnings of our relationship with God. This is another question that, that, that has a lot of confusion in our day and age. If you ask people about uh, their relationship with God or even their relationship with Jesus, and you try and quiz them and learn a little bit about what they mean by that, you're going to get a breadth of answers, right? There are some people who, who uh, you know, they... they understand relationship with God to mean that therefore the church is utterly irrelevant. There's no need whatsoever to go to a church. The Bible is really irrelevant because I have a relationship with the one who wrote it, so why would I need this? Right? And so you have this notion in our, in our age where a person can have a relationship with God in their understanding that's not tied to any truth. It's not tied to any external reality except their conception of who God is. But I've got a relationship with God. I'm a spiritual person. Me and Jesus, we're good. And since I have that relationship with Him, I don't need to, I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to worry about that. And it was just written by men anyway and, and probably messed up. And you see how it goes. It's, it's, some, it's some ethereal kind of connection that people think they have this relationship between God and man. But the Bible, particularly here in Genesis, we see it tells us something different. That there was a time when the relationship was face-to-face in the garden where they could relate to one another. They could talk with one another. We're going to see in just a couple of chapters that there was a relationship of accountability where man is held accountable to God. Where God gets to say, this is what I want you to do and not do And then he shows up to check. There's a relationship of responsibility and accountability. It's very different from the ethereal notion that, that, uh, yeah, God is out there and he, you know, I I have a conception of what he's like and that's really what he's like for me. And and so don't don't come, you know, bringing your your doctrine or your teaching or something to to correct me. That's not a biblical notion. 
And that's certainly not the notion that we run into in Genesis. We see here the beginnings of our relationship with God. And particularly important in our day and age, verse 27, we see the beginnings of male and female. Male and female, He created them. Our gender, our sex, is not the product of something I dug out of my heart or something I conceived or something I identified. It was given to me by God who came up with the notion. And so we have the roots of male and female, and we're going we're to deal with those questions in more Uh, more detail as we work through Genesis, but it's important, and it's important to the Genesis story that we have an understanding that, that I am a man because God made me one. It was His idea, not my conception. And so we see the roots, the beginnings of mankind and His identity and His relationship with God and in male and female and related very closely to that, the idea of marriage and family and children. You see the first command there given in 28, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so you have a a discussion from the very beginning. I mean, we're still in chapter one of the book. And we're already talking about family. We're talking about marriage. We're talking about men and women and children. And so we see bound up in this uh, creation of man, his identity and male and female, related to that is the notion of marriage and family and children and how that all works. That it's not just a conception we get to come up with. God has already very intentionally spoken about this in chapter 1 of the book. And so, you and I are going to get to look through and talk about these things and discuss how they might relate to our culture, how they might relate to my own thinking, how they relate to life in the church, our understanding of the Bible, and even our understanding of the gospel. This brings us to The Christian answer to our worldview question number three, what is wrong with the world? So not only do we have the beginning of all things and the beginning of mankind, but here we even have the beginning of redemption. What is wrong with the world? Genesis 3 is what is wrong with the world. We live in a world that is produced by, results from, stems out of Genesis chapter 3 where you've got the serpent coming into the garden and you've got the conversation uh, between the serpent and the woman and you've got the man standing by and you've got the temptation given and you've got them eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit, the, the one they were told, don't eat of that tree because when you do, you'll die. And they eat of that, free, that, that tree and so th- they die. And you and I experience that. So in Genesis 3, we see what the problem is. The problem is sin. And the problem we deal with now is no different. It has a different form, and we might put different words to it, and and the commands are uh, specifically different, but sin is the problem. And so we have an answer to what is the problem. We don't have to imagine it. We just read all the way through chapter 3, and we see what what the problem is. We see sin. And so we're going to wrestle with this passage and how sin is introduced and what tactics the enemy used. Have you ever thought about this? 
the serpent, he, he made an argument. He, he, he won the argument. How did he do so? We're going to look in detail about how he called into question God's Word and then how he ended up questioning God's character and then how he ended up just blatantly denying, contradicting God's Word and how we fall for it. And nothing's changed. And so we see what the problem is. That problem is sin. And we see the origin here in this book. And so what's, what's the solution? What's the solution? Well, already we're introduced to the promises of God. Look at chapter 3 and verse 15. We'll start reading in verse 14 because uh, that encompasses the whole thing. This is the Lord speaking to the serpent after sin has entered the picture. He's rendering judgment. And He says, because you have done this, serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so here, spoken in words to the serpent, the one who brought temptation into the garden, we have the first promise. We've identified what the problem is. What's the solution? The solution is bound up in this very promise where he says, there will come a seed of the woman. I'm promising this now, God says. There will come a seed of the woman. There will be enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. There will be enmity, 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 and it will come to a climax. It will come to a point of resolution where there is the greater conflict, the greatest conflict. And in that, the seed will have his heel bruised. He will suffer a wound, and it will be a grievous wound, but it will result in the crushing of the head of the serpent, an even more grievous wound, a mortal wound. So this conflict that has begun even now in Genesis chapter 3 will come to a climax. It will come to a head, and it will be one. It's not up in the air. It's not a, it's not a question. It's not, oh boy, I really hope this works out well. It will be won by the seed of the woman. There is one promised who is to come. He will conquer. And this serpent who snuck into the garden and brought temptation and sin with him will be stomped on, will be defeated. And so we we have right here bound up not only the problem, not only the sin entering the picture, but you've got the solution. And of course, you and I know, we've read further in the book, we know where this goes, we know how it plays out, we know it's Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the seed of the woman, who stomps on the head of the serpent, who is the enemy, who is Satan himself, defeating Satan, defeating uh, Satan's attack and his whole plot, his whole plan, his all, whole desires, and Jesus ends up winning. So we have that promise right here in chapter 3. Now it's in seed form. It's tiny, and it needs to be developed, but folks, we don't have to wait until the Gospels to see it developed. It's developed in Genesis. Right here, we see it begin to be developed, this notion of the seed of the woman who will have victory. And so we're going to see that even from 315 on, there begins to be this anticipation 
this next child, is that the seed? Is that the one we're waiting for? We're waiting for one to come and defeat the enemy. Is this him? Oh, it's not him. Well, maybe it's the next child. Maybe it's the next generation. And you have this anticipation developing of the one who's going to come, who's going to defeat that serpent. And so we have the beginnings of redemption right here in chapter 3 of the book. And so I'm excited for us to open this together and to uh, look at some of these things. I'm excited for us to trace through the origin of God's people, uh, what, uh, what obedience to God looks like, what disobedience to God looks like, what, what, what the world is supposed to turn into and, and what the problems are. And, and most of all, I'm excited for us to talk about this promise, this redemption that's been promised all the way back in the beginning. And of course, you and I know that this, this leads us to our celebration of the Lord's Supper today. And so go ahead and take your elements out. And we'll conclude today's message by celebrating the Lord's Supper together. We've just seen the introduction here of, in 315 of this notion of the seed of the woman who's going to come and, and crush the head of the serpent. We've seen how this is all going to end. We've seen how redemption is going to be accomplished. And you and I get to celebrate it together. And so, before we proceed, I, I just want to make note of something that this is This is something that we celebrate not merely as humans. All humans fell when Adam fell. All of us who have proceeded from natural generation from him, we fell when he fell. So this isn't just a human celebration. This is the celebration of 315. This is the celebration of all those who have placed their faith in this seed of the woman, in the Messiah, in Jesus himself who has accomplished the victory for us. So this is for us to celebrate. This is for us to remind ourselves that God keeps His promises. I think sometimes we struggle to think that God keeps His promises. And this one is, it's on page 3 in my Bible, and it's fulfilled all the way through, and it's fulfilled even today. And so what we celebrate here is for Christians to celebrate. If, If you don't know the Lord, if you If you are just hearing this and you're not really sure that you uh, believe in Jesus, that that you maybe don't understand your own sinful need, let's talk. I I, want to talk to you after this, so come and and talk to me. This is for, for Christians to celebrate, not because there's anything unique and special about Christians, but it's because Christians recognize there is everything unique and special about the seed of the woman, and we recognize our need for Him. And so... If you don't know the Lord, just let, the, let the, this time pass and think about what we're saying for Christians. We think about the sin that Adam and Eve committed when they ate of the, the fruit of the forbidden tree. And they brought death upon themselves. Well, you, you and I haven't you know, literally eaten from the fruit of a forbidden tree. I don't even know if there is a forbidden tree somewhere, probably in some culture. I don't know. That's not the problem. You and I know that it's disobedience to all manner of other of God's commands. That we have acted contrary to God's character. We have sinned. Each of us knows this. And each Christian knows that there was sin that I committed before I ever came to Christ. 
And because of that, I deserved utter judgment from God, everlasting judgment from God. But Christians, you and I know that that's not what we received. The seed of the woman came on the scene, born as one of us, Jesus Himself, the Son of God who became the Son of Man, born onto this scene, went into the context of our lives. He obeyed, and we haven't. And He went to the cross. He went to the place of suffering, the place of punishment, not for anything He had done, but for what you and I have done to keep this promise, to fulfill this promise. And He bore in Himself the wrath for all my sin, all of my sin in the past, all of my sin in the future. He bore it in Himself so that there was no more wrath of God left for me, but grace for me. And so Jesus bore my punishment, took it upon Himself all the way and fully propitiating God's wrath, taking God's wrath upon Himself. And so by faith in Christ, by trusting in the one who, who was crucified and was buried and was raised on my behalf, I stand before God forgiven with the righteousness of Christ credited to me. And this union that was lost in Genesis 3, when we read through Genesis 3, we feel a great break and we feel a, a, a sense of loss that's powerful and it's saddening. And we've been restored to union with God, to communion with God. We have peace with Him who is our Father. And so we come to the elements. And I think before we go to the bread and to the cup, let's take some time just quietly and express to the Lord our own sense of need for Jesus' redemption. And take some time to confess your sin to Him, Christian. To, to, to recognize that you still have sin and He still takes it away. And express your joy that by faith in the finished work of Christ, that has all been paid for and you have right standing with God in Jesus. Let's take a few moments and do that. First, we come to the bread. Paul says of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands this bread and it reminds us of what Jesus did in giving His own body for us. We celebrate the fact that 
Jesus is the one who gives us peace with you by his own offering. May we be encouraged and strengthened in our faith even as we partake of this bread. In Jesus' name. Jesus said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next we have the cup. Paul continues, In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we hold in our hands this cup that points us to Jesus' own blood given to establish a new covenant, a new covenant in His own blood that He would do the, the obedience, that He would bear the suffering, that He would accomplish all Your holy will in Himself, and that He would give that to us by faith. That we who could not have lived up to Your standard would never have done so and didn't do so, have right standing with You because of Jesus. Father, I confess my own ongoing sin that, that even now, having been a Christian all these years, even, even knowing and even preaching this grace of God, preaching Your Word, preaching Christ, yet I'm not free from sin even now. And so I confess it. And I ask for Your forgiveness. And I rejoice that in Christ I have that forgiveness because of His body offered, because of His blood spilt. Thank You for Jesus and thank You for this new covenant where my relationship with You is established by Jesus, not by my works. In Jesus' name. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, and when I'm done praying, there's going to be a family up front who would love to pray with you. If you want to talk to them about how to know Christ, they would love to share with you. If you want to bring your needs or the things that you want to praise God for, they would love to pray with you. And there's also going to be opportunity for Brianna over here with uh, the younger children to bring up their blast zones and, and discuss those things. Let me pray for us, and then we will be dismissed. Father, we are grateful for the fact that you have communicated to us in your word, telling us what is most important, telling us about how we can know you and have peace with God through Jesus. And we rejoice that you made that promise all these thousands of years ago, located in your word in the earliest chapters, and you have kept it. You always keep your word. And so we rejoice in you, you who never fails. 
Bless us as we go, I pray. Help us to be encouraged by what we've done today in celebrating the Lord's Supper and being reminded about Christ and what He's accomplished for us. I pray that You would work in our hearts, that our love for You would, would be inflamed, that we would rejoice and go forth rejoicing in Jesus our Savior. In His name we pray, amen. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. God bless you all and you're dismissed.